0: Hello, my name is Aesop Decker, and I was the drummer of Agaloc from 2007 until 2015. But before I joined the band, I was a huge fan. I discovered them through one of my many trips to Aquarius Records in San Francisco, where Andy Connors showed me pale folklore and described it as catatonia meets fields of the Nephilim. And that was um, all I needed to hear. It was a buy-on-site kind of thing. And it was all I listened to for the next several months. Um, then I was very, very eager to hear more material from this band and it was a long wait. And then the Stone Wind and Pillar EP came out. And, um, even though it was older material, it was new to me and I just loved it. It, it did not disappoint. And it was really neat to kind of hear the sort of more death doom origins of the band. Um, and of course the Sol Invictus cover was just fucking magnificent. But I think one of the most important things that Agaloc sort of cemented for me was that um, American metal, extreme metal, black metal, whatever you want to call it, um, was something to be taken seriously.
1: Welcome to the Invisible Oranges podcast. Uh, I am your intrepid editor, John. Uh, today we are joined by Agaloc. Uh It's been a long time since they've talked. And I think have, were you ever on a radio show back in the day? Or no, I don't think we've rarely
2: done
3: like a three way interview. Usually like, our interviews were together on you know like a tour bus or something. Well,
1: oh, uh, I don't know if you guys want to introduce yourselves. I'm sure everyone knows who you are, but uh, just uh, for continuity's sake.
3: Sure. Hi, uh, John.
2: <laughs> Who wants to go first? John, you go first.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm John Hahn. And
2: I'm Don Anderson.
4: I'm Jason Walton. Uh,
1: thank you for joining us today, gentlemen. It's, uh, it's really great to talk with all of you. It's uh, Like I was telling John before we started uh, recording, it's been a long time since all of us have talked together. So it's really nice to kind of get the, the gang back together, as it were. So today we are going to talk about uh, your of Stone, Wind, and Pillar EP, which uh, turned 20 earlier this year, which is uh, I guess it's a milestone. I don't know. uh, What what do you guys think? It was just an EP. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I mean, you know, for us, it was, like like I said in the announcement, you know, it was kind of cobbled together because the record label really wanted to follow up Pale Folklore with something right away. And so it was really just kind of cobbled together. So I think maybe we were all surprised how popular the EP became and even more I was always really happy with the way that of Stonewind and Pillar uh, went over live. I think we kept playing that up until the last show ever. And it was also nice that most people thought Neil of the Cross was our song.
1: And uh, you know, it being cobbled together, you know, doing my research, um, I thought I knew a lot about Agalok, but as it turns out, you know, meeting up on stuff, I didn't I didn't realize that the of Stonewind and Pillar, the first three songs were gonna be a seven inch. What what happened there? I understand the iron fist just kind of folded or
3: yeah, that was that was a weird situation because um, you know I was in contact with Thomas from Future Magazine who also ran Iron Fist and No Fashion Records, and yeah, he offered a seven inch deal after he heard the demo, and then it just never happened. Yeah, I mean that that of someone in
2: color, I mean, and specifically the seven inch. Was the very next recording Agalok did after the very very first demo, so it, it came out before the '98 promo. Um, it really is some of our earliest work um, ever.
4: I always think it was really much older than 20 years.
3: Yeah, in many ways, it's yeah, it's it's older than 20 years. And you can, and you can tell. I mean, the the quality of the recording and the the songwriting. It was definitely it was written. It was the next song written after this old cabin. You know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I remember we were working on that tune. I remember especially that riff, that, that sort of uh, the solo rhythm part early on. The dun- I, remember, I remember John was channeling like a very sort of traditional metal riff, like a kind of dark metal early Catatonia riff, I believe. may have been the reference, but he was still trying to find a sound, although it was the first time we ever played as a, as a band, more or less.
1: Yeah. Right. Because, um, it was after the, uh, uh which of this Oak demo that everything really started to come together. I, I know the three of you were you know, in contact and collaborating together, but this was the first like Agaloc as a band recording,
3: right? Yeah, yeah. I'd say so. Um, so
1: I always found, well, not always, I, I found, uh, the, the continuity kind of interesting with this release coming before pale folklore, uh, as a recording, but then kind of leading up to the mantle because there was that more pronounced kind of folk influence on this, on the original song, the Stonewind and Pillar song. Uh, and it kind of feeds into the mantles, um, more neo-folk kind of influenced self. I'm, I'm going, I'm getting somewhere, I promise. Um, so when you released this, how did you feel it worked in continuity with everything else?
3: Well, it was it was a direct reference to our influences at the time. I mean, we were way into victus and you can hear the Death in June influence and Current 93 and all that. And I think doing that cover was sort of a nice bridge from pale folklore to The Mantle, you know, because we, we had already started writing music for The Mantle. And it was, I, like, I know we at that time we had and uh, the Great Cold Death of the Earth, like, pretty much written. So it was a nice bridge of, of what was to come.
2: Yeah, I would say with Neil of the Cross in particular, uh, tracking acoustic guitars, learning how to track acoustic guitars, and uh, you know, strumming acoustic guitars, doubling them, panning them hard left to right, that sort of thing. Because um, you know, my great sort of awakening with acoustic instruments was Neil Folk, was bands like Death and June, Söldväktis, particularly, uh, particularly like the later Death and June, but what ends when the cymbal shatter, Because I've always associated acoustic and nylon strings with like very classical sounding intros to metal songs like fight fire, fire fire you know that's usually what would, you would do you would have a nice little classical guitar thing and then some crashing heavy metal would come in afterwards and i always associate strumming with like folk music or like being around a campfire and kind of kumbaya stuff and i never imagined that kind of open strumming sound dark and then i heard but what ends when the cymbals shatter and the dark one of the darkest records ever written and so it made me feel comfortable uh, integrating the strumming sound without fear of sounding like we're at a campfire singing Kumbaya. Uh,
1: and you were really one of the, I mean, there were bands that came before you, like like Ulver and stuff, who were doing the, uh, the folky kind of black, dark metal thing. But Agalloch was really the first band to have a more pronounced neo-folk sound. And uh, what was it like being kind of that, that first jump into that style at that
3: time? I think Imperium was maybe one year ahead of us. Yeah, thing. I think so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah that Imperium, that was like 96, Winter Sunset.
3: I was actually thinking more of their second album um, in 97. Oh,
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the uh, Songs of Moors and Misty Fields. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think at the time we
2: felt like maybe we, no one was, I mean, as far as I could tell, like, I mean, I know garm had a coil patch i don't know it was weird because for us Folk was ultimately what i would you know what's been called the world serpent family and so this was you know in the day when you could really trust everything the label put out and so whenever i had the money to buy an import i literally would buy anything on world serpent so that included like nurse with wound uh coil current 93 death in june solvictus fire nice all these weird bands that were also more post-industrial and very You know, like, again, like Imperium and those sort of bands are still very classical, Baroque or whatever you want to call it, like very, you know, traditional. But I mean, my God, when I heard the Blade, I'm like, this is this is like a Sabbath record. I mean, it's heavy. It sounds more metal than, say, Imperium. So I think we felt like we were the only bands, we're the only metal band that cared about World Serpent type stuff at the time.
3: Yeah. And we were we were into a lot of the more even more obscure stuff like nature and organization and. Yeah. Uh, who are some other, some of the other ones that are like less known um, we are way into as well.
1: With, with the Pacific Northwest scene, obviously this was kind of an impetus into the more naturalistic sound as a herald to this kind of sound and seeing where it's gone in the years that follow, where do you place Agaloc's importance in that scene?
4: The Pacific Northwest scene? Yeah. No, it's, it's hard to remove yourself from that. I mean, we were when we were recording this and when we were starting Agalock, uh we didn't we didn't really have any like kinship with local bands or anybody in the pacific northwest windham hell um windham hell yeah Yeah. for sure windham hell was big um it was was nothing like it is now obviously or even you know 20 15 years ago i mean it was completely different we we were good friends with windham hell um you know, we knew of a couple other bands, but we were never, it was never like a community like it is now or like a scene like it is now. Um, and it, it's hard to it's hard to really gauge if we had an importance in that scene or if we didn't. It's hard to look outside of that. Um, and I, I, I think it's pretty obvious that there is a certain amount of importance uh, that Agaloc had to that scene, but it's really hard to gauge what that is.
2: It's hard to gauge it without sounding, you know, self-aggrandizing. That's why I try to leave it to the critics to tell us where we are rather than me, <laughs> you know, sort of, you know, place myself there. But yeah, look, I mean, I, I did a, fa- before I, before Aglock was a thing, I did a fanzine, like a death metal fanzine here. And so there was a Portland death metal scene in the early 90s, bands like Savior, Victim of Eternal Decay, Body Bag. Um, none never really, you know, broke out really big. Um, but I used to hang out with a lot of those guys, go to rehearsals as a very young teenager, just wishing I could in a death metal band but Portland even before that was really known as a punk rock you know uh, that was over you know eventually overshadowed by Seattle but we had a wonderful punk rock scene um and so there was nothing like the kind of music that John and I and Jason were into and I had to meet John through a kind of punk industrial dude named Steve-o and it was when John rolled into a studio that I was hanging out in with steve and I told the story before, but he had like a Nocturnus pin or an Entune pin, a Nocturnus shirt. I, I, I can't remember which was which. Yeah, it, that's right. But it was, I was like, oh, thank God, you know, because Stevo was into a lot of stuff I, I wasn't into at the time. And, you know, I, I wanted to find someone who was into the stuff that I was into. So the fact that John had those, like, you know, signifiers of, I'm in this more melodic European death metal, black metal. I mean, it was revelatory. And we, I was like, who else are we going to? We, we didn't want to bother finding anyone else. It was just easier just to work together. It wasn't anyone else. You were either a punker, heroin addict, or, a, you know, washed, already washed up death metal guy. Didn't steve uh, get you into Death and in June and stuff, though? Yeah, steve was instrumental in getting me into a lot of that world. Absolutely. And in the record store downtown, Secondary Records, there was a guy working there that kind of helped me through that stuff. Uh, Cause it's really hard to get into because there's so much variation. Um, but Portland did not have. There was no. There was one black metal band called Die Inferno, but they were your standard face paint, spitting blood. You know, it wasn't what
0: I was into.
4: That's stereotypical Pacific Northwest scene. Now it's a. It's completely a marriage of that that punk scene with like the European uh, black metal scene mixed together, and that's what makes the the quote unquote Cascadia scene or even like the West Coast scene so different than other places is bands like Ludicra like that. Yeah. They could only exist in a place like San Francisco. The, the West Coast, San Francisco. Yeah. Well it's
2: like when I remember having a conversation with Johnny from Fauna outside one of their gigs down in <clears> her <throat> body's pan. And I really realized how different we were despite playing very similar music. I don't know, somehow as usual with me over time, Iron Maiden enters a discussion. And he wasn't a Maiden fan, didn't grow up in Maiden, I'm like, well wait a minute, you play metal well, how did you get here? And he got there through, through crusty kind of hardcore punk rock, and Burzum was his crossover band. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I guess, yeah, I, I never listened to black metal like Dark Throne or Burzum or Mayhem as being crust kind of hardcore punk in a way. But I mean, you can hear it now, but to me, they were metal bands. And so it was an interesting to see how there was really this, this sort of chasm that opened up between he and I, that there was a very different history that had diverged. A lot of those guys didn't come from metal. They came from punk,
3: hardcore. Yeah, I had a, I had a conversation with uh, one of the members of Corvus Corax uh, at, at the show that we saw where they played with Guy um, Infernal and, and Blood Axis. And it was interesting as I, I was talking to their bass player, and you know, I, I told him, he was like, you guys kind of remind me of, like, of, of bands like In the Woods, and he was pretty dismissive of that. He was just like, yeah, I don't know what that is. So I think later I learned um, when I was on I, I did a tour with Wolves in the Throne Room with my other band and I was talking to um, one of the Weaver brothers the, the singer and uh, about Corpus Corax and he said that they yeah they came from a total cross punk background but they had that aesthetic that really cool sort of pagan nature aesthetic that I was really fascinated by when I saw them
4: they did it super well in that show that was yeah that was really impressive like you talked to you know someone like Aesop too it's the same thing like he was obviously like a, a punk guy and then he discovered I can't remember what it was I, I want to say it was Burzum too
2: was he dumpster diving yeah. and he found dark throne in a trash can or something
4: that's what it was dark throne yeah he was dumpster diving found dark throne like a
2: punker wouldn't
4: do yeah but that's that's what I love about the the west coast and specifically the pacific northwest scene too is I I can't claim to be like punk kid but i definitely skipped a lot of like traditional metal stuff and i i grew up on stuff like black flag and the germs and things like that um and then discovered autopsy and my life changed and carcass and my life changed Like have like somewhat of a similar trajectory um but i really appreciate that like that punk ethos being mixed with with metal and that's why like i love a lot of the west coast bands
2: but i mean also in further answer to your question like that was a totally different history and storyline than Agalog. Aglock, aside from Jason's specific history, like we we're traditional metalheads in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I grew up on, you know, early eighties metal, found my way to thrash, found my way to death metal and so on. And so a lot of the other bands that didn't have that. So I think that in many ways made me feel even more alone, uh, more specific, I don't know, you know, more singular in a way. I felt very much like, okay, we are really weird and different compared to what's cropping up around us.
1: So going back to the EP, uh, there, there's an interesting aspect to it that really defines this EP itself. And that is the, the heavy presence of Shane Breyer, a keyboard player, uh, where the last, uh, the last track, Poem by Yeats, could be a Susuris and Inanus song.
3: I was curious if all you guys... <laughs>
4: <laughs> and hear what you said, John.
3: Yeah, I just said all of, all of that stuff could have been Susuris and Inanus.
1: It was, uh, well, I was curious, uh, you know, Shane couldn't join us today, but, um, I, I was curious if you could tell me he's a mysterious part of Agaloc's past. I was wondering if you could tell me about him.
3: He was a tape trader of mine that I met or who I met in, uh, I guess it was 94, 93. And he was, uh, he was one of the tape traders that knew about the atmospheric stuff. He got me into so much stuff. In fact, he got me into over when he, he dubbed me the Vardnaut demo you know back when it came out and he showed me i think you you were there jason when when he showed me showed us uh Berg um, that he had just got you know it just come out so he was it opened really, my
4: world to so much stuff yeah it was, he, was he was like he was an encyclopedia
3: and you know and he like rotting christ and dissection and like yeah. he, he was the guy
4: like, he barathron and he showed Becoria, me so much stuff
3: yeah
4: Yeah, the yeah <laughs>
3: So, you know, he was, so he, in 95, when I was, when I was kind of putting together the idea of, of, of starting this, this project, you know, Shane was the first person I really talked to about it because I wanted it to be atmospheric and he played, you know, he had the keyboard stuff. And early on, we, we discussed about integrating more, you know, like I would, I, I would create the music, the drums and guitars and stuff. And then he would layer keyboards on top of it, but it just didn't pan out like that. Um, yeah and he you know he was kind of in the he was a little older than than us and he was already kind of on his way to college and, and all of that so he he quickly sort of exited the the, the music scene
4: you yeah. had to make a choice between focusing on music or focusing on his academics and he chose the academics and so you know in the beginning he was a, a part of agaloc as long as he basically could be and then he had to you know move on um, but he, like, I mean, like what John said, I, I I echo that. Like, he exposed me to so many different things. And he had a, a fanzine called Until Dawn. Is that right, John? Yeah. And it was, I mean, he was just, he had his finger on the pulse of so many different things. And it's funny because he just lived in this small tourist town in Montana. West you know. Yellowstone. Uh, West Yellowstone, the entrance of Yellowstone Park. Um, basically, nobody lives there. It's about as isolated as you can get in the United States. Um, but, you know, and John and I were long time underground guys tape trading with people all over the world. And he was just blowing our minds with with demo tapes of bands I'd never heard of before. And I remember like Rotting Christ being one of the big ones. And of course, Oliver, too. But uh, I mean, the guy was just like fountain of knowledge.
3: And he was so blase about it, too, like.
4: Yes he was he would yep. just
3: he would you know show me something that would absolutely blow my mind, and he'd be like, "Yeah, well, you know the vocals kind of suck, and it's you know not that either, <laughs> but it has this one song that's got this part that's really cool, I mean, he was like that,
4: yep, yeah, 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 he's always been like that, yeah
1: so I was curious about uh the decision to cover Neil to the cross uh before this release, Haglock was. Not necessarily blasphemous, but it, it denied a lot of things without being overt. But this particular song itself really cemented Agaloc as like a heathen, not quite anti-Christian, but against the norm kind of band. So what led to choosing this particular song?
3: I think um, originally I wanted to do The Cat is Dead by Kurt 93. But oh, good one. doing my vocals, I like, tr- you know, David DeBette has a very unique vocal style that I wouldn't want to. You know, it would just, it just didn't seem like a good idea, but I think we saw an opportunity with Sol Evictus to really, I don't want to say make a better version of us of the song, but definitely it, it, it was, it was rough enough that we could make it our own. You know, we could take one of the Sol Evictus songs and make it our own. And, you know, I think we had discussed maybe doing a song from the blade. I don't, you remember that Don? I remember us, I, I, and I can't remember why we
2: chose Neil Cross. I don't think it was because of the lyrics. I think that was just uh, you know, just the pure chance that they happened to be uh, critical Christianity. You know? Um, I remember there, maybe we talked about Among the Ruins. Yeah, um, yeah. Death of yeah. the West. Um, that, that could be a really cool kind of heavier song. Um, I don't know why we chose Neil Cross specifically. I mean, I think John, I think you chose it, and then i think i just learned how to play it i think that's it just might have been that, it might have been that easy it's 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 in strange i mean not strangely i guess but it's it's almost very similar chord progression to great cold death so maybe there was yeah. some
3: inter uh it lent itself really well to to your leads and, and interplay with as well so yeah we changed a lot of it we changed the pre-chorus
2: chorus or slap band no the chorus is very different um even Ron, the the engineer at the time, helped me sort of think through some different harmony choices um, at the end because he always had a really great ear. And so, and we really did make it our own. Um, and I think that's why people forget that it's a cover. You know, it's, it reminds me a little bit. And nothing, not to take anything away from Tony Wakeford or <laughs> Sol Invictus, but I mean, we kind of did a Metallica Diamondhead thing because. Um, Tony got a lot of metalheads listening to Soul Invictus, which was not really his scene. And even when I got a chance to play with Soul Invictus at Prophecy Fest back in 2016, he uh, kind of led the crowd on to think we were going to do an Agalot cover. Because <laughs> I, I was one of the special guests to, to join them. And you know he's, he's this great British wit. And I think he led them on. And then he said, you know, it's Neil of the Cross. <laughs> <laughs> he's very i mean he's very pleased with it but he's also a very self-deprecating guy
4: right you know i think he was really surprised when he played with us in london the reception
1: yeah that,
4: uh, that when he when he walked on stage and joined us the reception he got was pretty phenomenal and i think he was really surprised by that yeah yeah i mean that, that all
2: those world Turbo bands never really saw that kind of
4: you know, they had a
2: cold fan base, very cold fan base, but I think he, he'd never played in front of a metal crowd. I mean, he did punk, you know, when he was in crisis, you know, but like nothing like that. I think he felt like a rock star. Maybe.
4: Yeah. That was a cool experience. Yeah, it was great having him.
1: Uh, on the recording, the the cover, you were joined because uh, there was the, the choir at the beginning of the song where you're singing summers that coming in and arise, arise. You were joined by uh, Brian Yeager, who mm-hmm. uh, is otherwise known as Sculptured's old singer. So uh, why did you invite him to join for this particular song? I think he w- he was probably hanging out. Maybe he
2: was there. Um, he could sing, I guess. <laughs> no, again, we never, we were just, we we're such a small, tight-knit group, you know, because at the time folklore and apollo ends were the exact same band i mean those are the three of us on both those records um with a couple you know additions of guest musicians so you know brian was always kind of hanging around and uh, he may have just been in the studio that day or i may have picked him up on the way there and said, can you you know sing along with us in this intro
1: that's what there was to it uh history destroyed there we go <laughs> that's uh that's really cool it's uh it was always really interesting seeing the interplay between, you know, those two bands over time, because I mean, I got into it a few years later and those two albums came out, but they they both struck me in different ways. And uh, it was they're very special to me. So I just want to thank you guys for making them. I'm kind of simping a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, well thank you. Yeah.
4: You're welcome.
2: (laughs) They were fun to make. I mean, those two records, we we made them back to back. And it's like we, you know, John would drive the car and then we switch and then I would drive the car. It was really like that. So it was a really musically rich period of our very young lives. It was
4: incredible. Incredible time period.
1: Uh, I wanted to I had this within his arm's reach. So I just kind of wanted to take this out. We were talking about um, Corvus Corax very briefly. I happen to have their demo tape right here. That was uh, that was another really special band to me when I was first getting into black metal.
3: So it's, yeah, I got uh, the same tape, right? Yeah, it's a great tape. Yeah, I got it at the show. Actually, <laughs> I don't know how many shows they played, but yeah, they they were kind of here. They were here and then gone. They put out one album yeah. and then disappeared. Yeah, well,
1: I know Johan did that uh, Red King project yeah. for a little bit. I only heard mm-hmm. ridiculous stories about those shows. It's uh, it's a shame that he's gone. Uh, I wish I could have experienced something like that. But
3: I heard that Burning Witch played with Corvus Corax back in the day. and Man, I would have loved to have seen that.
1: I heard that, too. I'll have to ask Mr. Bootsy Kronos about that. That seems like a, an interesting story.
3: Yeah, I think Stephen O'Malley has got some got a story about that. So,
1: so you know, yeah. I've you know, the, there aren't many questions that I can really ask about, you know, this EP. You know, it was it was cobbled together. It's, uh, it featured a cover that people think is yours, which is pretty fun. But I wanted to kind of open the floor up to you guys and see if there's any stories that you remember about this EP recording, you know, back in the day, anything. Uh, the ball's in your court.
3: Well, it was recorded at Smegma Studios, for starters. Michael, Michael Lastra, he's kind of a, a local legend. Um, maybe Don could, could shine some light on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's You know, it's funny because we had this, you know, John and the demo had, very sort of,
2: you know, folky, you know, Gustave Doré aesthetic. And then you had a studio that was called Smegma. And, (laughs) you know, it didn't really fit with it, but yeah. So Smegma is a long running, noisy sound collage, very experimental band, kind of a collective here in Portland. Um, Just tons and tons and tons of uh, releases. And uh, Michael Astro was very well, is still very well known. I don't know what's, you know what he's up to now, but he had a really funky looking studio in Portland. And it's where my friend Steve, who I mentioned earlier, his band Landfill, which was kind of a Godfleshy type band, he always recorded with with Mike at, at his studio. So I always hung around there, and that's where I met John, was at Smegma. And so I think when John was looking for a place to record his, you know, the Aglock demo, he went ahead and went with, went with Smegma in that case. And so we did the same with Upsilon Wind and Windham Pillar. And so it's again it's really unlikely because it's 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 you know it's different you know as we're not your standard Portland band. I mean we don't look like sound like any other like well known Portland band. And you can't really get more funky Portland than Mike Laster of Megma. And so we were in this weird house with all these weird oddities, you know strange things on the wall, tons of records, mostly punk, just weird stuff. But we're just these long haired metal heads talking about dissection all the time or something at the, you know, at the time. Uh, but Mike was really cool. He didn't really intervene. And, you know, he just pushed record and, you know, I, I, I really liked them. Smegma is really cool. I've uh, seen them a few times. Um, yeah, it was a weird place, but then eventually we went to, uh, soundtracks with, uh, Ron who did our first three albums.
3: Yeah. I, th- I remember, I think Mike, my- Galastra just did a Poison Idea documentary.
2: Yeah, he did. He did the, the Poison Idea documentary. So, I mean, he's, you know, archivist, too, of the Portland scene. I
4: remember Lastra being um, very much just an engineer. Yeah. Not a producer in any way. No. Or Ron Chick would definitely give us advice, give us tips on things, or voice an opinion of some sort. Mm-hmm. Lastra was just, record, tell me when to hit stop. <laughs> and, uh, Yeah. Kind of nice, kind of freeing. Um, But then, you know, years later, when we started working with Ron Chick, it was very, very helpful to have somebody that acts as a producer as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
2: Ron, you know, we could I would probably work with him again if I could. But, um, yeah, he was very helpful, I think. Really, really handy in a number of times Um, because we were still learning how to record, you know, the best ways to layer things. Even little things. I remember a very specific nerdy example with Odal, where the very ending chord is strummed very slowly, and the heavy guitar. When I first doubled it with the heavy distortion guitar, I was I was strumming it the same way. And I remember him saying, "No, no, no, just hit it, boom, on the beat. Don't do, don't drag across the strings with the acoustics." And I was like, "Hit it," and I was like, "Yeah, it has a greater punch," and then the acoustic. I don't know if either of you remember that, but that was like a real moment of like really actually thinking about having, that's all Ron and those little things, there's far more provocative examples, but that was, you know, really helpful for young people who had these big, you know, visions of music that was complex and dense and had no idea how to realize it.
4: I remember being extremely sick for the Stone, Wind, and Pillar recording, a really bad cold, i could barely breathe i was snotting everywhere um so it made the actual recording interesting for me obviously i wasn't singing or anything like that but i was not feeling well i might have been running a fever at the time so my my memories of that period are a little strange <laughs> um i do remember john tracking vocals i think downstairs or something yeah, in The control room downstairs. upstairs and yeah it was just a it was a weird period of time um remarkable because like we said before it was the first time that we'd like recorded as a band and that was really really different um but yeah i was i was so sick I, i'm not sure i've ever been that sick before yeah you have, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have. You, remember, you remember uh remember calgary calgary <laughs> there's a story you saved your life you
2: have a bon scott moment
4: <laughs> yeah yeah okay i've, I've I've never been that sick with a cold before.
2: <laughs> Stuff came out of your nose then, too. <laughs> yes. Uh, Upstone was the first time we did a click track. I remember that because, yes. I mean, John was still playing drums. So I, I guess we must have tracked the drums
3: first to a reference guitar. Is that how we did it? We might be getting in the weeds here, but. No, I think we did a traditional click track and, and scratch guitar. And I just played to that. And then we layered it from there. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, is one more
1: question that everyone has on their minds and i know it's going to be the the eye roll question but wow. the three of you are talking again <laughs> there we go I roll. What are we listening to Dave? Yeah. what's your top 10 that was the question top 10. So i was like i mentioned like i'm talking with agaloc and everyone's like are they getting back together it's like i know what the answer is
2: i'll ask <laughs> uh we're definitely back together as as friends and colleagues i mean yeah. the first person The first person, I mean, both me and John, the first person I share any new things I'm working on, like John was the first to hear the sculpture demos for Liminal Phase. He'll probably be the first to hear the demos uh, for the next record. Jason sends me, you know, we're we're just like we were in the early 90s in a lot of ways, you know, sharing each other's stuff. Um, Speaking for myself, of course, I would... I would love to play live again um, as Zaglock but of course with the pandemic and stuff I mean I love playing the music I miss it I don't know what it would look like you know I don't know you know of course we have talked about it but I I, everybody's heart has to be in the right place you know we have to do it for the right reasons Um, the current environment doesn't really welcome that I'm still seeing tours getting postponed even now Um, but I miss the music I'd love to play it again
4: of course. I think at this point it's too early to really say anything about that I think at least for me like John and I have recently become friends again in the last less than a year, <laughs> so it's you know it's uh, it's something that is definitely in my mind, but um, I'm more focused on kindling our friendships as the three of us, and you know just enjoying that rather than focusing on like what are we going to do next, you know.
3: Really nice too to to, I mean, I'm in the middle of. Sort of, you know, doing like reissue stuff and designing uh, things that Eisenwald's going to be reissuing, like *Up and Pillar. So, you know, for me, it feels like the band never ended because I, I, was I, just I like, say. I'm still working on shirts and t-shirt designs and <laughs> you know, layouts and all this kind of thing. Um, there's definitely some some stuff planned for the next year or two. I, I can't talk about it, but. it it has nothing to do with like a reformation or anything, but it's definitely some, some things that Agaloc fans will be, will find interesting. I'll just say that. Yeah. It's
2: interesting in some ways. Yeah. The band, I mean, I remember when we broke up, I'm like, well, we got big enough that like, like when I broke, when my first band that broke up, you know, we were just high school kids. So like, it didn't mean anything. (laughs) There weren't any recordings. There weren't, but like, I'm like, you know, Agaloc became a phenomenon. Like there's still going to be, reissues and shirts and things like this. So um I think what John's it, yes <laughs> the way John's describing it, it sounds like we never broke up in a lot of ways. We're yeah, just I, a clothing line.
4: <laughs> I, I, think, I think whether we like it or not, the three of us put in in, in the same context is gonna be called Agalok, whether we're performing or even talking about music. Even this podcast, I thought it was kind of strange, like, oh, with Agaloc. Well, are we Agaloc? I mean, I guess we are when we're together, but it's, I think that we'll always be Agaloc, whether we're playing music or not. That's just, it seems to be how we're contextualized by, by people.
2: I mean, is Emperor together? I don't know. It's are together, but when those guys get on stage, they're Emperor. But they're not going to make no. the music. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's different ways to look at that. I mean, I mean, what, didn't it, when Carcass reformed, they weren't planning on making new music initially. Is that correct?
3: I believe so. Yeah. They were just, they were just cashing in. <laughs> I think, just cashing in. Yeah. I think Zizma too. And Zizma's making a new album.
4: I saw that they're playing some shows too. Yeah.
3: yeah. Wow. That's, that's news to me. That's crazy. I, in October, I, I'm actually thinking of flying to Helsinki to see them.
4: I saw a flyer for it yesterday.
3: What was that, Jason?
4: I, just, I said I just saw a flyer for it yesterday yeah. for a show.
2: I mean, I think we've seen a lot of different examples of how bands can continue. You know, there's the emperor model. There is the, you know, sort of reformed model, making new records. You know, I, it could take any form. If it does take a form, it could take any form, you know. Um, there's a lot of ways. I believe yeah, cause I believe both Karkin had the gates. I remember when they reformed, they just were just going to play shows because people got into those records years after they were out. You know, that's one way. But then they all ended up making records again.
4: I know people are sick of me talking about lawnmower death, but I'm not. They, reformed, talking about they reformed to play some shows and have fun and play Bloodstock in front of thousands of people and have a lot of a lot of fun. And they recorded a record this year, and and Pete sent it to me, and is surprisingly awesome. Like it's really really great. It's uh, kind of like an Oh Crikey Part Two in my eyes.
1: Oh, okay,
4: um, and it's coming out next year. And They never, ever, like even as like three years ago, they're like, "We'll never record music." Like this is just it's fun, but yeah, they have they've got a new record coming out, and it's awesome.
3: You know, it's It's awesome to me. That's crazy. Yeah, it's unwise to for me to to say never to to this kind of stuff. Um, As much, I mean, I would love to make another record. I just don't know if it would be something that would be beneficial for the fans because it's like the three of us. Yeah, we come from the same kind of musical path. um, history but we're so different also and you know it's like if we made an album i'm like i'd love to make like just a rock album i don't think that would be great with you know having the Agalock name on it you know what i mean but at the same time if we if the three of us made a record and it sounded like i don't know new model army or something it's still Agalock being Agalock. it's still us doing what we want to do so it's, it's a weird did make a,
4: hmm? did make a rock record it's called ashes
3: that's true. And and technically, I'd say that um, Serpent is kind of a prog rock record,
4: too. That's true. Serpent yeah. is very much a rock record.
3: But, you know, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, you know, we're still developing
2: or growing as musicians and still getting the new bands all the time. If Aglock ever did another record, I mean, I love making records almost, you know, regardless of what name it's under. If we decide to make an Aglock record again, I would just you know i want to do it just to make a record i love the process i love the writing i love the i love all that stuff um but it's going to be i think the number one reason is we have to do it because we want to yeah. and um and like what john says whatever comes out it's going to come out we'll call it Aglock, but yeah it's not going to be the mantle part two
3: i, I actually i read a review of 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 my last solo album uh cast iron blood where somebody had said if this was an Agalock album, it would be amazing. And I'm like thinking, <laughs> okay. So it's like, I think some people just care about the brand, you know? Yeah, I, it's it's become a,
2: that, that's, <laughs> that's disgusting. I don't want it to be a brand. You know, we're one letter away from band to become a brand. So it's organic. Like, so the whole reason why we started playing music in the first place was just because we liked what we were doing and we wanted to make this type of music. It would be the same thing this time. I mean I guess what's nice is that we're just friends without the burden, you know, because Aglock is in some ways the classic story of a band that got more and more popular and, you know, different motivations fall into place and then money starts coming in and decisions and it's just, it starts to become a VH1 special very quickly and I gotta tell you man, it's I'm sure the rest of the guys agree with me, it's just kind of cool not to have that over us, although as John points out, and as I can also point out in every sculpture review, it's not good. We still have that cloud hanging over us in everything we do, which is a double edged sword. Um, so I can't imagine what it would be like if we put out an aglock record and call it aglock. I think it'd be
3: torn it apart.
2: It would, <laughs> would, would be. I guarantee you.
3: They always
4: are, whether, no matter how good they are. Like um, when Carcass's Surgical Steel came out, I was like, oh, this is just a yawn fest. And I listened to it again the other day. I'm like, this is fucking amazing. So, I mean, it just, Fans are always going to be critical, um, especially of like any type of like reunion or formation or anything like that, because people want earlier material no matter what. Right. Almost 100 percent.
3: They want the nostalgia. With the nostalgia. know yep. yeah, they, they want us to make the mantle part two. Right.
1: I, you know, as as a big fan, I, I wouldn't want that. You know, I don't I don't think you need to touch that again. No, it's just me, though.
4: We <laughs> did it once. Move on, you know. Well, there's right now, of band that, that
2: kind of carried on that sound, you know. Incident. Um, was that Moonspell record that came out? Did it come out? I can't say the name, but it was often compared to the Mantle a lot. Um, you guys know what I'm talking about? Moon oh, uh, no record? Something, but it's very Mantle. It's very Mantle. It, and Moonspell record? No, no, no. Moon Oh Moon
4: Moonsoro. Yeah, yeah. Okay yeah, yeah. I do know it was on the end Oh you say Moonspell wow <laughs>
2: <laughs> Uh you know like last, best, that was part two to me I you know no disrespect to the Moonshadow guys but I thought that record was very you know strumming guitars in the background uh, ever <laughs> layered guitars long song
4: I I know which one you're I talking about have it over there I, I emailed them and complimented them on the record and they're like, oh yeah, this is the mantle part two. Like they were just okay, like Okay, well
2: they admit to it. Oh yeah.
4: They were like, we're huge Aglock fans. Yeah.
2: Well there you go. It's, it's an awesome record. I
4: think it's a great record. So that is a you know, whatever
2: happens happens you know, we're gonna do it because we want to do it. I don't think any of us need to do Aglock again. I think we all have our own musical, you know, projects. I think we're all pretty content and happy. You know, I don't think any of us has any,
4: there's no need. So if, when it happens, it'll be more authentic, but. For now, it's kind of nice to be back how we were before we just like friends.
1: Yeah. Honestly, that makes me really happy. You know, it's, it's nice to see, you know, the three of you talking and being friendly again. Like, I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, like I would say the
2: last couple of years of Aglock were very strained uh, relationship-wise. I mean, that, the last tour we did was very strained. So, and why was it strained? Ultimately, because of the business that had become Agalog, ultimately. Lots of external forces. The same three dudes. You know, so yeah, it's like, it's not to put in such grotesque terms, but it's like, you know, this, this tumor has been removed and it's just, we can heal and just be us. And that's uh, a wonderful thing.
1: It really is. It's nice. So, uh, we've been talking about 45 minutes, and uh, so I want to kind of wrap things up. But if there's anything that any of you want to say about Agalock about anything, uh, the ball's in your court again.
2: Uh, thanks for you know, chatting with us about uh, the EP, and thanks for all your support, John.
3: And
4: yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for recognizing the anniversary and putting us up with us. It's been fun.
3: And the vinyl will be out next year sometime <laughs> for Upstone. All right. well, thank you, everyone. This, this was great.
2: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Screaming Bloody Oranges, the Invisible Oranges podcast, via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and other streaming services. We'll make a post on our website at www.invisibleoranges.com to accompany the release of each episode. Visit us anytime for more in-depth heavy metal coverage that goes a step above and
0: beyond.